1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
2: series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Some breaking news NATO is investigating, and Poland is raising its military readiness after reports of a missile killing two people near the Polish border with Ukraine.
0: We are aware of the press reports alleging that two Russian missiles have struck a location inside Poland near the Ukraine border. I can tell you that we don't have any information at this time to corroborate those reports.
2: The government announces lump-sum cost-of-living payments. As St Vincent de Paul says, 800 people are calling their services a day. And a controversial World Cup is only a few days away. We take a look into issues swirling over host nation guitar. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight's VMTV. has been on edge for nearly nine months now as Russia's war in Ukraine rages back and forth. But today, those tensions ratcheted up another level. Missiles rained down across Ukraine, hitting key infrastructure sites across the country all day. And this evening, things escalated to another level. Poland has raised its military readiness after reports of a missile there killing two people. NATO says it's investigating. It is worth remembering that Poland is a member of NATO. Well, tonight, surrounding countries were rushing to Poland's side. Here's what the Pentagon had to say in Washington.
0: Let me go ahead and highlight up front that we are aware of the press reports alleging that two Russian missiles have struck a location inside Poland near the Ukraine border. I can tell you that we don't have any information at this time to corroborate those reports. Uh, and are looking into this further. And so when we do have an update to provide, we'll be sure to do so.
2: The Kremlin has denied any involvement, but let's bring news correspondent Alex Carrier, who joins me from Brussels now. Uh, Alex, we heard the Pentagon saying, look, we're in an information void at the moment. Nothing has been corroborated, but what is being reported? What do we know about this incident at this point?
3: Well, the Polish government just concluded its meeting of its National Security Bureau and they confirmed that two Polish civilians were killed in the east of the country on the border next to Ukraine. That much is uh, been established. But again, details are thin on the ground. And that's part of the reason why there's an abundance of caution and uh, quite a, a measured reaction by Western allies when it comes to rushing to any particular statement or conclusion on this. So two Polish civilians, not military, but two civilians uh, were killed in this strike. No details on what kind of weapon or if it was a missile or if it was uh, like we've seen reports maybe debris from a, a missile that was shot out of the sky those details are still not clear so very important to establish the facts in these early stages but the polish government as you said increasing its level of readiness and communicating with its nato allies about what to do next
2: and they've also convened an emergency meeting haven't they of their own national security council what do we expect to come out of that
3: Yeah, absolutely. That, that meeting uh, was ongoing about a few minutes ago. It wrapped up and we heard that they were uh, very much reacting to that situation as quickly as possible. As you'd imagine, the Poles will be the first one to have any detail on the ground. Uh, the outcome from that is that escalation of its military readiness, but also more conversations with its NATO allies. The Polish president uh, was on the phone to American President Joe Biden, Joe Biden just a few moments ago. He also spoke to President Macron of France uh, and of Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg of NATO. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg saying that he spoke to President Duda, offered his condolences for the loss of life and that NATO is monitoring the situation, adding it's important that all the facts are established. So it's very much holding pattern for now. The other detail from uh, a statement from the Polish president, he said that uh, Article 4 of NATO was discussed. Now, that is uh, a consultation measure, basically. NATO allies will get together uh, and consult on what to do next, hold a meeting, figure out what their response should be. Now, that's quite significant because it means that Article 5 wasn't discussed. And Article 5 would imply a collective defense response from all NATO allies that would drag in everyone from Turkey to the US, the United Kingdom into this conflict uh, and have a joint defense uh, reaction and response to this. And that only happens in case of a direct attack. So the implication, and again, this is just speculation at this stage, is that the Poles do not, or at least are not operating under the assumption that this is a direct attack Yet that may change. As I said, the details are quite sketchy still, but they are discussing Article 4, which means NATO will get together, uh, put heads together and uh, have a meeting likely in the coming hours.
2: At this point, Alex, um, the Russian defence ministry, they have denied any involvement in this. What else did their statement say?
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Deny, deny, deny. And that's been the modus operandi for the Russian government on, on allegations like these in the past. Uh, their statement said that the Polish media and officials' uh, allegations of Russian missiles is uh, a deliberate provocation in order to escalate the situation. Uh, to give some context, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine saying that 85, or at least 85, Russian missiles struck on the uh, Ukrainian territory today, including in Lviv, which is about 50 miles east of of the Polish border. The statements from the Russian uh, continues. No strikes on targets near the Ukraine-Polish border were made okay. by Russian means of destruction. Uh, the wreckage published uh, by the Polish media, it has nothing to do with Russian weapons. So deny, 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 despite counterclaims from Poland and Ukraine.
2: All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Alex Kadia, thank you for that update. Well let's get more on this in studio. I'm joined by Minister of State at the Department of Transport, Hildegard Nocton. People Before Profit, Solidarity TD, Mick Barry. Angelica Obeichan, Professor of Politics at DCU. it's to you I'm going to come to first. What's your assessment of what's happened here?
0: Well, as has been stated, we are now in an information vacuum. I mean, this has to be placed in context. Today was a terrible day again for Ukraine. It was revenge for the the military humiliations that the Russian army has endured on the battlefield by withdrawing from Kherson, the only regional capital which they managed to secure since the war began. And as has been the case up until now, they take their revenge out on ordinary people. So as was stated, 90 missiles managed to reach the territory of Ukraine and two missiles, it seems, have reached the territory of Poland. And we don't know how they got to reach the territory of Poland. There are a number of theories. Uh, some in Poland are saying that it was deliberate, that they were you know, testing the boundaries. Uh, trying to see what the reaction would be uh, among NATO. Of course, NATO is 30 countries, very different approaches sometimes to to issues. Hungary and Turkey, for example, would be considered outliers. Um, But many people saying that it it may be uh, the result of the Ukrainians deflecting uh, a missile, that their anti-air or their defence system essentially pushing that missile off its trajectory, landing in Poland. Certainly, if Russia was to deliberately attack a target in Poland, these targets would not necessarily be the most likely ones. But the the, the bottom line is we don't know what happened. We just know that missiles landed, but we don't know why.
2: And Russia have said at this point that they are not responsible for this. But if this was a deliberate attack by Russia, would you expect them to take ownership of it?
0: No, I wouldn't. Um, you know, in the same way that when the Ukrainians have attacked, uh, or rather they've been, it's been attributed to them, attacks in Crimea, they also haven't taken responsibility because it gives the opponents uh, a reason to escalate the conflict. So, so no, I wouldn't expect them to. It's and In that sense, we shouldn't take... We shouldn't, I guess, place too much weight on a denial from Russia. I think if they were responsible, they would deny... Uh, they wouldn't take ownership of it. Okay.
2: Bring me through this Article 5, which I think we're going to hear a lot about over the next couple of days. I think there is an assumption isn't there? That if a NATO state is attacked, a direct deliberate attack, that it will be automatically triggered. That's not the case.
0: That's not the case, no. I mean, the country uh, which is attacked would have to invoke Article 5. It would have to, you know, call on its NATO allies to come to its defence. And there have been occasions in the past where, of course, NATO member states have involved themselves in conflicts or they have been attacked. You think of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which often springs to mind when people are thinking of the current conflagration. There was a U-2 plane shot down at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a deliberate decision by a Soviet general, and John F. Kennedy was under huge pressure to respond. But he rightly concluded that that hadn't been given uh, approval from the highest echelons and therefore there was no escalation. Uh, Similarly, you know, you look at the Falklands War Britain was involved in in 1982. There have been precedents where NATO member states have got into conflicts, but they haven't invoked Article 5. As you say, it would have to be a direct attack. Um, This doesn't seem to be right now uh, a direct attack. Certainly it's not at the level of like putting troops over the border.
2: Something that's sort of very clear. Exactly, and very our declaration obvious. of war. Um, I just want to look at one of the responses that we've seen, one of the global responses, and this is from the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They tweeted just a little earlier. Latest news from Poland is most concerning. We are consulting closely with Poland and other allies. Estonia is ready to defend every inch of NATO territory. We are in full solidarity with our close ally. Poland, And I think Lithuania also put out a similar text saying we must be seen to defend every inch of our territory. Are there going to be those people within NATO, members of NATO, who will want NATO to respond to this more forcibly than just invoking Article 4?
0: Well, certainly there will be differences of emphasis. And if you're living in Estonia, I mean, Estonia has a population more or less the size of Dublin, and they have been under, you know, Kremlin oppression and occupation for for many years. They see... Ukraine as, as as part of a much larger threat to the neighborhood, which they are part of. And therefore they will be calling on some kind of exemplary measures to signal to Russia that this is unacceptable. And even tonight, President Zelensky in his evening address said that this was an escalation, that, you know, that, that, that the West must act. And, and the Foreign Minister of Ukraine said that, you know, Ukraine is not only protecting Ukrainian skies, but as is illustrated today, it's, it's also protecting the skies of its neighbors. Because, you know, irrespective of how this missile got to land. Poland, it did, and it's because Russia is is firing, uh, you know, huge amounts of missiles into the general area, you know, regularly.
2: Um, are they testing potentially NATO here to see how far they can go before NATO reacts? Well, potentially, if they were responsible, and I accept that they have denied responsibility.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's a possible theory, and some some countries and some some political figures believe that uh, that Russia has from the beginning. You might say even even when you think of the the build up to the war. Uh, that it was testing the reaction uh, of of Western powers to see to what level. And indeed, there are many who argue that because of the ineffectual response to the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014, that Russia, then testing the boundaries, was encouraged to to do more. And that's why countries like Estonia and Latvia are arguing that a strong response is necessary, Mm. because they believe that deterrence is at the heart of what has preserved, you might say, the territorial status quo, at least for for many years in in the region. Uh,
2: Hildegard, look, the situation is still an evolving one. We will are waiting for clarity and confirmation on this and we'll bring it to you if we get it before the end of the programme. But is this exactly the sort of situation that European governments are scared of, this type of escalation?
4: I think this is a very worrying development um, and I think we're all, when we heard the news this evening, acutely aware of the potential dangers here. I think everyone is 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 on, on high alert and I know that countries are going to proceed here with caution. What we don't want is any kind of, you know, overspill into other countries. So I know they're trying to ascertain the facts as Danica has outlined. And to proceed here, with caution. But we are clear that we do stand, you know, with Ukraine, the people of Ukraine and Poland. Uh, Just very concerning, I suppose, what happened tonight. And we just have to wait and see to find out the actual facts of what happened.
2: Are you concerned here, Mick? Because I know your party has been pushing for some sort of peace talks at this point that it's time to sit down and try and, and negotiate an agreement here. Does this feel further away after a day like today?
1: Well... One thing that seems to be increasingly clear about what has happened today uh, is that a huge number of missiles rained down on Ukraine. Uh, 90
2: missiles, I think, today. is I've heard 85,
1: honest? I've heard 90, I've heard nearly 100. It's clearly a large number. Okay? Now, those missiles were targeted at civilian areas as well as the energy supplies. Uh, For example, a residential apartment block was hit. I agree with Donika. This is a sign of some desperation on the part of Putin. I think it's not just down to the military reverses in Ukraine, although I think that that's uh, a key factor, but I think there's another factor that needs to be put into the equation here, which is that he is under increasing pressure, I think, on the home front. His conscription plans are not working. A couple of brief examples of that. There are reports now of people refusing to be conscripted. In six cities, there have been protests by relatives of people facing conscription. There's been reports of troops in some areas refusing to leave barracks and also now getting reports of so-called fragging within uh, the Russian military. In other words, Soldiers turning their weapons on their own officers. I think that's a very significant development. Um, And I think it's important what happens next. I think if NATO rushes to the front, that can be difficult for the anti-war movement in Russia because Putin can play the card of we have to look, we're under pressure from NATO. Particularly when they deny this. Yes.
2: And say that this is a provocation. So... We've had had the
1: response from the warmonger in the Kremlin today. We don't need an offensive response from the warmongers on the NATO side. It would be counterproductive from the point of view of the anti-war movement, which is challenging Putin now. And I think that that is a very important development to watch.
2: that anti-war movement that you talk about, um, Donika, what pressure is that putting on Putin, do you think, how significant is that movement?
0: Well, I was in Georgia two weeks ago and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have fled uh, Russia since the mobilisation call in September to evade uh, conscription. Now, this isn't necessarily an anti-war sentiment. This is an anti-mobilisation sentiment. Such people could have left in February or March. Were they adopting a principle stand against the war? But certainly the war is now affecting far more people in Russia than they had been you know, led to believe at the beginning. This was supposed to be a relatively inexpensive, short victory. and and it's anything but. And they were initially drawing up ethnic minorities and poor people, conscripting them into the army from places like Buryatia and Dagestan. Now it's it's reaching out to the middle classes, the upper middle classes. Certainly the people I encountered in places like Georgia, the Russians there, were young, they were well-networked, they were affluent, and they were the type of people who thought, I'm never going to be involved in this war. This is a war in faraway Ukraine. It's never going to affect me. So it is a factor. Um, But we have to remember that, of course, Russia is a dictatorship and therefore it's not, you know, subjected to the same popular pressures that would exist in a democracy. And as long as Putin has a monopoly of coercive power, he can still, you know, act uh, with impunity uh, within Russia.
2: All right, as I said, we'll give you any updates uh, as we get them on that unfolding situation in Poland. Uh, We're going to leave it there for now. My thanks to Donika Obeican for coming in uh, and joining us on that breaking news. Hildegard and Mick will be staying with me and a reminder about our nightly live interactive poll this evening, which allows you to get involved in the show and tell us what you think about the big issues of the day. Tonight we are asking, are you planning to cut back on your Christmas spend this year. You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code on screen. We'll have more on this story after the break. back. Well, the government has set out how it will pay out lump sum payments to help people during the cost of living crisis. The payments this week will include a €400 euro fuel allowance lump sum payment, €500 euro to those in receipt of the working family payment, a €200 euro payment to those in receipt of the living alone allowance and a €500 euro disability support grant. While they are being given out, the reality of the situation for a lot of people is being laid bare. St Vincent de Paul say 800 people are calling them every day looking for support. Hildegard Nocton and McBarry are still with me. And I'm also joined by Tricia Keelthy, Head of Social Justice and Policy at St Vincent de Paul and by Economist, Austin Hughes and I'm also joined by Jenny Johnson, Head of Marketing at Kilkenny Design. You're all very welcome to the programme. I'm going to start with you uh, Tricia, because I know traditionally November and December are the busiest months of the year for St. Vincent de Paul. Are they busier than normal this year and what kind of calls
5: are you getting? What support
2: is it that people are looking for?
5: Yeah, so it is busier at the moment compared to the same time last year. Calls are up in the region of 20%. And as you say there, you know, November and December are traditionally very, very busy time for our volunteers every year. But now with the cost of living crisis, we're seeing the impact on households. We've seen it all year long. And I suppose from our point of view, what we're seeing from the calls that we're getting, really people are very worried about how they're gonna heat their homes over the next couple of months. Parents really dreading Christmas time already. They want to provide those special moments for their children, but they're worried that they're going to let them down. At the same time, you know, you have things like holiday hunger parents being concerned about because at Christmas time, you know, the kids are off from school. They won't be able to access breakfast clubs, um, hot school meals, which make a huge difference to families. So they're the types of anxiety and worries that families are having at the moment. Now, of course, all the cost of living measures that were delivered in October and that are being received into households this week will help. But the reality is they're really just making up for the damage already done so far this year. You know, Households will see that going straight to utility arrears that they may have built up, that they had to put on the long finger. And we're really, really worried what particularly the new year will bring when we're going to see potentially prices continue to rise. And even if they don't rise, they will level out at a very high level.
2: Are the people who have been in touch with your service Have the majority of them been in touch with the service in the past? Have they sought the assistance of
5: St Vincent de Paul before now? Or has that changed? So we are getting people who have never had to rely on SVP's support before. So this is their first time calling the society. We're seeing households who maybe had to rely on our help at Christmas time or maybe back to school time, but now they're struggling week on week. And then, of course, there's households in very deep poverty who struggled Prior to this, and are now very much in entrenched poverty, and we're really concerned about the long-term impacts on people's health, their well-being in the longer term, if we don't adequately address the cost of living crisis at the moment to ensure that the supports are adequate, that they're not temporary, because once they're gone, they're gone. We need to see more permanent changes to help people.
2: Um, Hildegard, you know, we outlined there at the top of this segment all of the payments um, that are being paid out this week. But the fact that St Vincent de Paul have come out today and said there's been a 20% increase in calls from this time last year would suggest that that money isn't going far enough and that people are being left behind. Well, I
4: suppose... First of all, the payments that are being made will be going into people's accounts this week. That's the the ones you've just highlighted there that's going to help people who live alone, older people, people on fuel allowance, disabilities, and uh, so lower income working family people. So, like for example, this week, if you're uh, if you you have a disability, you live alone and you're on fuel allowance, you'll get an extra eleven hundred euro into your account. With that said, I completely appreciate we're all in a cost of living crisis here and what we want to do, what Minister Heather Humphreys wanted to do uh, as part of the budget, was to make sure that we're targeting those who are most vulnerable and these are, are the groups. And I absolutely agree that, you know, we're, we're, many of us are going to have a very different Christmas this year than we did last year. But this is, I suppose, the start of a suppose, series of payments. And we also had, I suppose, a double payment of child benefit, which was a universal payment and there'll be more next year. Next year next month, excuse me, um, a 500 um, lump sum as well for carers uh, from January. All the social welfare payments will increase by €12 Euro per week, But also, and I know there's people out there tonight listening to this and they're saying that I have bills to pay and...
1: And that all of those lump sums are going
2: on arrears
1: dealing with problems in
4: the past, not the problems they're facing in the next
2: couple
1: of months.
4: So my my, my message there is, as part of this budget package as well, we have a 6 billion euro reserve fund Mm. that we will use for next year again because we don't know what lies ahead. We want to support the most vulnerable, we want to support families and businesses as well who are employing people. We did all of this during Covid. We don't want to see for example businesses who employ a lot of people who are working now going to the wall because of I suppose, the basically the war in Ukraine and the rising energy crisis so we're monitoring this
2: we're going to continue to ensure that
4: we're protecting as much as possible okay. the most vulnerable
2: is that good enough do you think McBarry the government saying here look we are monitoring this we are aware of the pressure people are under and there is six billion euro fund there and we will tap into it if we next need to uh, next year
1: no, I don't think it is good enough. I think people are finding that if the money hasn't been spent already, that the um, budget concessions, which are not inconsiderable, um, no sooner have they arrived than they're being given out. And who are they being given out to? They're being given out to the energy companies, they're being given out to the supermarkets, and they're being given out to the landlords. People see So I think people are saying, look, what we got in the budget wasn't enough, but it was something. But why are the government not taking serious action against the profiteering that we're seeing all around us? Mm. That's the feedback that I'm getting.
2: Yeah. and want to respond to that, because there has been this conversation around windfall taxes for as long as this crisis has been uh, unfolding. And yet there seems to be no movement on that at all. Uh, d- just in relation to
4: energy bills, there's 600 euro credit going to uh, every household here in 203 payments Yeah, but that's up not the point, I suppose that but the point that Mick But the point that Mick makes, just, just in relation to, to Mick, and, and this is, I suppose, a, a a difference in ideology here around, you know, we want to support businesses as well. This is about businesses who create employment. There's lots of SMEs out here as well listening today. Big businesses, multinationals, who we also want to help. Why? Because they generate the income to help the most vulnerable, to help Minister Humphreys, who's announced 325 million euro this week alone. It's part so of the You 1. don't think there two. should be any sort Bil- of windfall tax euro then? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but I'm saying the ideology coming from Mick, who, by the way, proposed a 31 or 32 billion euro budget. If that was the case, Mick, we wouldn't have any uh, funding to help the most vulnerable now. We're in very uncertain, um, we have a very uncertain vista ahead of us next year with the but war, perhaps, with rising costs. Absolutely, you wouldn't, that you wouldn't need that
2: 6 billion reserve fund because they will already be helped.
4: No, we need we need to ensure that we always have funding for the for for the rainy day for the uncertainties. And God knows, and you've, your previous section was all about the uncertainty that lies ahead. We need to protect the most vulnerable, protect our families, working Mick, families, but, and yeah. businesses, respond, and particularly this week the most vulnerable. And that's what we're doing.
1: Well, if we want to talk about billions, uh, maybe let's throw into the equation the two and a half billion that Tesco made last year, or into the equation the more than nearly three quarters of a billion that the ESB made last year.
2: And many, and many other retailers. I know you name those two, but there's many retailers. Yeah, we, we, we saw minimum
1: pricing earlier this year being introduced for for alcohol. Why can't we have a debate about maximum right. pricing for electricity, gas, milk and butter?
2: OK, I want to bring Austin in here because, you know, it's a bit of a vicious circle, this, isn't it? Because we're hearing about the pressure that people are under... We're hearing the fact that people are perhaps looking to cut back this Christmas. But this is a really, really important and difficult time for businesses too. It's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it, Austin? It is a vicious
6: circle and it's a vicious circle around the world. Your earlier part of the programme dealt with the latest instalment in what's an international crisis. The reality is inflation in Ireland is 9.2%. In Belgium, it's 13%. The Baltic States, 20%. Argentina just reported 88% for October. So this is an international crisis and the capacity of the Irish government to really wish away all our problems is very limited. In terms of the crisis, however, the reality is the jump in inflation has taken about... The equivalent of about 3,000, 3,500 out of the average household. Now, most households do not have the capacity to withstand that. The measures introduced by the government are welcome but they're going to be inadequate. The government, again, has to be very careful if you look at how the UK government had to flip-flop over its measures. So there's a balance, a delicate balance. And I think the only thing you can do is to promise that there will be more done in the new year. In terms of the situation as we see it, you know, the, the reality is this is a problem, again, that is affecting all elements. Uh, the Credit Union Consumer Sentiment Index for October had a special question. It asked how many people were planning to cut back mm. on their spending. Seven percent said they wouldn't cut back because they would adequate funds. Six percent said they wouldn't cut back because they 'd no money they 'd no capacity to cut back, and everyone else, nine out of ten consumers, is having to cut back on groceries, on heating, on gifts and that so. What we're seeing is a crisis and the case is, what can we do? Where does the money go most effectively? And that will remain the case for probably the next six months to a year. So we have to be realistic about what can be done. And we do have to do more probably in the new year and promise that very quickly.
2: Okay, I just want to go to uh, one retailer who we have on the line now. It is uh, Jenny Johnson. We were talking uh, about people, you know, being very conscious that Christmas is 40 days away and really feeling the pressure. Um, Tricia from St Vincent de Paul was discussing that. Are you, as a retailer, as somebody representing um, Kilkenny Design this evening, are you experiencing a slump in consumer spending? Are you expecting a cutback Christmas, as it's being called?
7: yeah like it's so interesting obviously to hear the debate there and whatever you want to say and i suppose what we're seeing is not a reduction in spend per customer per se but definitely um a difference in how the spend is phased so for sure we see people spending over a longer period of time previously we would have had some days or weeks perhaps where that spend was very heavily concentrated and bigger spend per purchase whereas now we definitely see that stretched out a bit more we also see, you know, very obvious, big demand for value, and um, both in terms of price and quality, I suppose, just to call that one out. And, and for sure, our customers are looking for that very good value. So obviously, we have to work in the background with our suppliers. You know, 74% of what we do is from Irish suppliers. So we're making sure that to, to meet that demand, you know, we have various different options products, categories and gifts and so on at, at all different price points, points to make sure that that's covered for customers. And um, you
2: mentioned there, consumers really going to be seeking out value and trying to sort of maximise their money this Christmas. Can retailers afford to give discounts at this point um, to consumers, given the pressures that they are facing themselves?
7: Yeah. And it's a debate that we have all the time internally, of course, and looking to what the market is doing. I think it's really difficult, especially for smaller retailers. I mean, I think we're quite lucky in that we have so many wonderful Irish suppliers. And I think for us, what comes across mostly is the quality of the product and the fact that it's made locally and designed locally. But obviously, that value piece is super important. And um, you know, like I mentioned, people are looking to spread the cost over a longer period. So we went out early this week, for example, with some of our what we call Green Friday offers to really, again, give that value. And to be honest, we have to deliver that value. That's what the consumer is looking for. So we have done some discounts. Now, obviously, they're not on our side. You know, our product, I think, stands for itself. But so so it's not huge, deep discounts, but it is up to 50 percent off, depending on the product
2: right. category. All right. I want to go to our poll and thank you to Jenny Johnson. Our nightly interactive poll and tonight's question was, are you at home planning to cut back on your own spending this Christmas? Well, the result of that poll was 71% saying that they will cut back and 29% saying that they won't. Austin, your reaction?
6: Um, Well, I I think of that 29% who say they won't cope. Cut back. most of those will be spending the same. I think there's going to be very few people who will be spending more this Christmas. It'll be, as I say, maybe the 7% that we found in our Consumer Sentiment Index. The reality is that not only have we the cost of living crisis, but we have the uncertainty uh, around tech jobs, which is bringing a whole new group into this. And of course, more generally, we have rising interest rates. So it's a very dark time. The reality is the government has put significant money into the economy there is still significant scope employment is holding up so it's dark but it's not altogether dreadful
2: right i think that's possibly a good point uh, to leave it we're going to leave it there for now my thanks to jenny johnson to trisha keelthi and to austin hughes lots more after the break and we're going to take a look at the many controversies with the host nation qatar just days out from the world cup Five days out from the World Cup and the talk is usually about who will be playing and who the favourites to win are. But this is no ordinary World Cup. Qatar have been doing their best to promote the nation. Ambassadors like David Beckham have been making videos like this. It's one of the best spice markets that I've ever been to. This is perfection for me. Qatar really is an incredible place to spend a few days on a stopover. But issues around LGBTQ rights and the treatment of migrants who built the stadiums in Qatar are leading some to call for a boycott of the tournament. Well, let's get more. Hildegard Notton and McBarry are still here. And I'm joined by Jamie Farrelly, Secretary of the Dublin Devils, a leading LGBTQ football club. And I'm also joined on Skype by Daniel McDonnell, football correspondent at the Independent.ie. You're both very welcome to the programme. Daniel, I want to start with you. Let's begin by looking at what's at stake here. What does it mean to a nation to win the rights to host a World Cup?
8: Yeah well I, I mean I suppose there's a great prestige there's a great honor there's um you know I suppose putting your your country on the global map now obviously you can look through the history of the world cup and and there were some countries who hosted who, who didn't really need that um there would obviously be some previous instances of countries and I suppose regimes who uh you know wanted world cup for their for their own reasons But what we have in 2022 with Qatar is a, I suppose, a pretty extreme version of that in that you have a country with with no discernible football tradition at all, um, granted the hosting rights and controversial circumstances to the World Cup to effectively try and announce themselves to the world. Um, But clearly, as you've sort of flagged there, there there's obviously a lot of reservations around uh, the choice of Qatar as a host. And the... I suppose the, the suitability of the country.
2: Okay, so bring me through some of the questions that people have about uh, Qatar, particularly, I suppose, uh, their human rights record, their attitude to migrant workers, and their attitude to LGBTQ rights.
8: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, as you said, like it's sort of first of all the concerns about Qatar was how they won the tournament, it was highly dubious, um, and then you know, I mean, initially this was meant to take place in summer. Uh, in a country that is too warm to host a competition in the summer, that didn't stop them from getting it. But yeah, to address your specific points, I mean, the, there's been a, a large number of unexplained deaths of migrant workers who've been uh, involved in the construction of the stadiums uh, across the last 12 years or so. Uh, some figures would be disputed, but what can't be disputed is that there's a very high number of unexplained deaths in the country. Um, in terms of, the, uh, I suppose, the, uh, the the freedom of expression that's permitted within the country. I mean, it's almost at odds with a lot of the stuff that FIFA would preach about inclusivity, about the ability, as you mentioned, you know, for LGBTQ people to, to visit the country, to feel safe there. I mean, effectively, it's, uh, it's banned. Uh, there's some talk of uh, uh, taking a more liberal approach to it, but that obviously doesn't, uh, take away from the fact that it's, it's a country where effectively uh, people are not welcome, where people who would like to travel feel they're not welcome in that country. And I mean, the two, the issues with Qatar, I suppose, break down along those lines.
2: And we see that clip there of David Beckham, um, who's obviously been brought on board, I'm sure paid an absolute fortune to talk about what a wonderful place Qatar is for a stopover. Is that a perfect example, do you think, of sports washing, of bringing in celebrities like that to promote a very, very positive image of a country?
8: Yeah, I think it's more attempted sport washing. I mean, and, and there's probably a, d- a debate at this stage, t- you know, to the extent to which for Qatar, this is about sports washing, i.e. you're trying to improve the reputation of a country, um, uh, you know, with, with question marks over through sport, or is it more of a show of strength to put Qatar on the map? Because, um, you know, h- has hosting this World Cup uh, improved the image of Qatar? I think the, the jury is very much out on that one. You, you could argue it's maybe exposed Qatar and some of the issues in Qatar to a, to a wider audience. So that's not really successful sports watching by, by one definition of it, but clearly, um, you know, very famous people along the way, even going back to the start. I mean, Alex Ferguson was speaking out in favour of Qatar in 2010, which is almost forgotten. Um, David Beckham is a highly paid uh, modern-day ambassador for Qatar.
2: All right, I just want to go to the panel a second. Jamie, would you be comfortable as a member of an LGBTQ football club travelling to Qatar?
9: No, I wouldn't feel comfortable at all and I wouldn't feel safe. I guess only the Qatari authorities could tell us if we are safe. It, it could be the case that they know all eyes are on them, so they're not as heavy handed, but the facts are, I wouldn't feel comfortable expressing myself. Um, I think that the comments from the football authorities carry no weight that the LGBT people are welcome if they accept our culture. I think comments from France Captain today Hugo Lloris, that Qatari culture should be respected in the same way French culture should be respected, also carrying no way because we're not talking about you know two kisses on the cheek and a two hour lunch with a bottle of wine. This is a basic denial of human rights
2: and we see uh, people like the Foreign Secretary James Claverly in the u k also you know telling members of the LGBTQ con, uh, community to go to Qatar, they are welcome, but to respect the laws of that state and not to protest. Is, do you agree with that? No. That there's a danger there if, if members of your community go along and protest in Qatar?
9: I think there certainly is a danger, but I would respect and greatly admire people who do protest. I think there will be protests. Uh, I would hope that Qatar recognise that there's a lot of attention on them I think what might happen was fans would be kind of quickly kicked out of the country. We also have to think then of Qatari LGBT people who don't get those same protections. We know from Human Rights Watch that they're persecuted, that they're exposed, they're beaten, they face long term prisons. prison. So for that reason, we need to really look forward and make sure something like this never happens again in football
2: that a country like Qatar doesn't win a bid like this. I saw um, Gary Lineker being interviewed earlier in the week. He's obviously going to be heading up the BBC's coverage of the World Cup. And he said, I am going there to report on this. That doesn't mean I'm going there to support this. Do you accept that, that there is a difference that by being there, uh, reporting on it, broadcasting on it, probably advertising uh, alongside the um, Qatar World Cup, that, you know, you're reporting on it, you're not supporting it?
9: I think you have to take it case by case. Gary Lineker is representing the BBC, obviously. I'd look more towards Gary Neville, who is commentating for the BN Sports, the Qatari Sports Network. And Gary's been very outspoken on social issues before. He was outspoken on club greed when the European Super League was floated. He was very outspoken when the Saudi Arabian government took over Newcastle. So I think it's quite hypocritical or something like that. But at the same time, I don't think we should be distracted by focusing on just one person. I think, again, the whole football and community really needs to take action to support LGBT people going forward in the game. Should
2: we boycott it?
9: Should no, football
2: I, fans boycott it? No,
9: I don't think so. I, don't, I think it's unfair to place that kind of moral burden on fans. At the end of the day, this is still the flagship tournament. Mm. Uh, I know players in the Double Devils will not be watching. It's a personal choice. I think there are things that fans can do Um, depending on their place in the game, you know, if they're part of a grassroots amateur football club, they could look at the dressing room culture and say, is this a place where gay people feel comfortable coming out? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe just be a quiet word to their friends or the kids that what they're saying is not okay.
2: Um, Hildegard, will you be watching it? Will you watch the World Cup? I wouldn't be running to watch it, to
4: be honest. Um, Is that because of the
2: sport itself or because of its location? I think...
4: I think it has been tarnished with the whole human rights you know, a- abuses and obviously something I do not condone. Um, I-, I think what's important as well is Jamie maybe alluded to it as well, it's important that we're discussing this, that a light has been shed on it, if the World Cup and it is happening in Qatar, that we're discussing these issues, which I think is really important as well. And I suppose it's up to individual people if they want to attend it or watch it. And I'm sure, you know, soccer fans are very torn. It's probably quite emotional for them because if they're a real fan, but then they're watching all of these humanitarian abuses, um, It's I think it's just, it's cast a real shadow over it.
2: Yeah, what about that recommendation from... Um, James Cleverley telling people to respect the law of guitar and um, telling members of the LGBTQ uh, community that that's what they need to do and that they shouldn't go there and protest. Do you agree with that stance?
4: I think it's up to everybody to do what they feel and that they should do. I don't think it's up to me or anyone else to dictate what people should do. If they feel that they want to travel there, they should. Uh, but I think we're all very aware of the issues, the human rights issues there. And I think if you do travel... You should criticise Hildegard. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. I You should criticise what he said. But what I'm saying is, is that it's up to everyone to make their, their own decision in relation to... Uh, he told people not to travel there. I would not give people that advice. And it's important that we speak out and we say that we do not condone these uh, human rights abuses, be it migrant workers, LGBTQI, gender issues, all of these
2: issues are across the board. Okay, we say that, Hildegard, you know, we say we condemn these human rights abuses and we condemn their stance when it comes to LGBTQ rights. But didn't Enda Kenny and Richard Bruton go there in 2014 to Qatar on a trade mission to try and forge relationships uh, with guitar, yeah, and I we're suppose, talking out both yeah, sides of her mouth.
4: Well, not really. A, a trade mission is, is is different. What we're looking at there is, as was trade, we're not saying that we don't engage with cultures. This is really important as mm. well. Just because we don't agree with a particular culture, um, that we close the door and and never talk and engage with them, that th- this is what I mean by having the the discussions. We don't have to agree with it. We we call them out on it. We um, was challenge them on the. On, on humanitarian and human rights issues. Absolutely. But what if we call
2: them out and we challenge them and absolutely nothing changes? But I think... It does. And and
4: societies do evolve. And I I know we can look at our own country and look at our own history in relation to how we treated women in the past. And I'm not comparing today in Qatar with, uh, you know, here in Ireland. But I'm saying that societies evolve, but it's through highlighting these issues, shining a light on it. And one thing you could say is that, you know, more people are talking about human rights issues in Qatar now. Again, not condoning it, but that is good that we shine a light and focus on it.
2: Is that good? McBarry, that look at this, this is probably the first time anybody has been aware of the human rights abuses in Qatar, and we wouldn't be talking about them if they weren't hosting the World Cup.
1: Yeah, I think the Qatari regime uh, were attempting to sports wash. Um, the record in terms of workers' rights, particularly migrant workers' rights, women's rights, and LGBTQ rights, is shocking. But if they did attempt to sports wash, uh, I think it is beginning to backfire on them now. And I think that pressure must be kept up. I think that there are... Will you watch the tournament yourself? I think I will watch some of it, but I, I think I've watched every tournament since 1974. I'm giving my age away here now, right? Uh, but I think a, 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 like a lot of people who've done that, they feel you know, quite conflicted about this World Cup. No, I think they're I, conflicted. I,
2: I, though. It's not the point though, Mick.
1: They're conflicted, but they'll still watch. Yeah, I think there's two legitimate stances for people to take. I think one is to boycott, and I think some fans will do that. I think the other thing is, if you watch, please try and make, in whatever way you can, your views known about what the regime is at. And if there are protests taking place there, and I agree with Jamie, I think there will be, Indicate your support for them, even if it's a tweet or a Facebook post.
2: Yeah, I just wonder will that happen, Daniel? I mean, there's all this discussion now, five days out from the Games commencing, but we all know what it's like when a World Cup starts. You do get caught up in the excitement and the euphoria of the Games. Everybody does.
8: Listen, there's no doubt that that does happen um, to a to, degree. To, to, you know, it, it always happens, but I do think that. Like with every World Cup, there's a story of the World Cup, and like I think the story of this World Cup, even the fact that it's at a different time of the year, the fact it's it's sort of a, it's completely upset the whole football calendar, which is trivial in the context of what we're discussing here, but it's it's not a normal World Cup, you know. And I think, and do you think I'm not because sure of that, been,
2: do you think lessons have been learned by FIFA by other um, bodies who award these big tournaments?
8: Well, I mean, FIFA will tell you some lessons have been learned. They've changed the structure for how competitions are rewarded. I mean, the decision was made by a small group of people, uh, a good number of whom were sort of subsequently mm. part of corruption and, and FBI investigations. And um, they will say it's changed. Um, the, I mean, some of the statements in recent weeks put out by FIFA would would make you wonder about that. Telling everyone to concentrate on the football. I think, uh, I think the story of this World Cup is inextricably linked with where it's where it's taking place. Um, there will be a focus on the football. It's, you're right to say that that will take over to a degree, but I'm, I, I'm not sure if it'll ever be far away from the discussion. I think everyone who's travelling there, working, certainly covering it, uh, is acutely aware of that.
2: And feels a responsibility to report upon it, uh, I would imagine. All right, look, we're going to leave it there. My um, thanks to all of my guests this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night. Take care.